Good evening, and welcome to the Practical Guide to Nothing in Particular. This broadcast was written and produced for no particular reason, and for a budget of practically nothing. If you enjoy newsworthy nuggets, improbable interviews, profound parody, or galloping gibberish, please stay tuned. And now, on with the show. And now a look at the community calendar. Dave and Gladys Wright are happy to welcome people to their Peony Garden for viewings on alternate Tuesday afternoons, weather and ambition permitting. Village Council has decided that there will be a longest whiskers contest at the fair again this year, but after much debate, it was decided that contestants must wear lower body coverings. The decision comes on the heels of last year's unpleasantness. The fair is, of course, the weekend after St. Boosie's Day. And finally, the traveling nurse will be back through Cranston's Corner on the second floor of the library in Capleton on Friday and Sunday of next week. Please keep your list of ailments to three or less. No narcotics will be prescribed. We were lucky enough to reach cryptocurrency advisor Lance Starlington in between prostate massages at his Maui Beach Resort, and he's on the show today to talk to us a bit about getting into crypto investing. Hi Lance, and thanks for taking our call. Now, I've been hearing a lot about Bitcoin from the millennials down at the local feed store lately, but I don't really understand it. Can you give me the basics? Oh, sure. It's really simple. In fact, it's right up there with the wheel and fires, the greatest in human achievements. So in essence, you take some real money, like what Trudeau paid you in CERB last year, for example. You invest in Bitcoin, and then the longer you own it, the more people get interested and want to get in on the action, and the price keeps going up. You can't lose. So isn't that basically like a pyramid scheme, though? Whoa, 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 whoa. We don't use that word anymore. Last night, around 3 a.m., a very distraught person whose gender is their own business, thank you very much, posted about how hurtful the P word is because of its long phonetic association with both paralysis and midgets. So by 3.15 a.m., an astute intern at the Oxford Dictionary team had flagged it for removal, and as of this morning, all instances of it used on the internet have been replaced with the more appropriate, diversely angled, pointy structure. But look, there's a real science to all of this. If you go back, money used to be actual gold and silver coins. Then, for several hundred years, we had paper money that was backed by treasury gold held by the central bank until Nixon nixed that in 1971. So now our so-called legal tender currency isn't really backed by or tied to anything. It just gets conjured into existence by the central banks and cleverly becomes mortgages, credit default swaps, and derivatives, which, much like birds, aren't even real. But the great thing about cryptocurrency is that it is by design a limited supply and thus inflation proof. There's a maximum of 21 million Bitcoin that can ever be minted, so Bitcoin will always be a store of intrinsic value like a Renaissance oil painting or an early 2000s Honda Civic. And there's lots of other major cryptos also backed by tangible real-world assets. For example, Dogecoin. Dogecoin's priced daily by Elon Musk's Twitter popularity. Ethereum is supported by cosmic rays and goblin semen. And Truecoin's inherent value is built entirely upon the public sentiment of what other competing cryptocurrencies get hacked, stolen, or wiped out on that trading day. These are all real-life practical foundations for which to assign a value to a currency, not just the whims of some elderly twat at the Federal Reserve. And I mean, let's not forget that many of these crypto coins have been around for at least three whole weeks now, which is really a testament to their stability and their durability. But Lance, I've heard a lot of reports that why people are hesitant to invest in cryptocurrencies is that right now they're not really useful for regular day-to-day -day transactions. Like my 80-year-old grandmother is not going to be able to shuffle into the Safeway for her liter of spicy porridge and pay with Bitcoin, now is she? Oh, well, that's just the thing, right? You have to remember we're still in the early stages of cryptocurrency adoption. 
I compare it to perhaps the first years of the internet when we were obligated to download MP3s from LimeWire. Well, well, thankfully now we're advanced enough along in the technology so that instead of owning a collection of MP3s on a local hard drive, we just pay an ever-increasing monthly fee forever to listen to our own music. The infrastructure for crypto is advancing in much the same way. For a lot of people, they can certainly see the benefits right now of using Bitcoin to buy kitty porn or laundering income from fentanyl sales. Yeah, but that lack of small-scale retail yeah, it's still an issue. However, the latest studies out of Georgian College show that the number of local retailers who accept crypto payments is increasing by 50% per year. There's even been some talk amongst the founders and executives of Bitcoin to eventually introduce physical tokens to the meat space world for small transactions so that eventually you wouldn't need to drag around a laptop with Tor browser and a satellite phone and the wallet app and print out of your 256 character encrypted passphrase each time you went to the shops. So check this out. What they're proposing is that there could be one day a printed certificate or a piece of paper which represents a value of Bitcoin that you would just carry around in your wallet. It might be something like the equivalent of, say, $20 at the time you get into the grocery store lineup and then either $14 or $23 by the time you get to the till. The cashier might then do your transaction and uh, give you change with some different physical tokens, these ones perhaps in the form of small metal disks. Wow, that's fascinating. What a great idea. Portable physical currency that can be traded between two parties directly and doesn't need a computer network to validate or verify. I look forward to that in the future. So we're almost out of time here and I can smell the sausage people waiting in the studio. But before we go, can I get your thoughts on these NFTs we've been hearing about? Yes, and I'm glad you asked. So, NFTs are short for non-fumigated tangents or non-functioning tits. And basically what it is, well, well let's see. Have you ever seen like a funny JPEG or a video clip on the internet maybe forwarded from your dad? And it might be a duck and a kitten sharing a cigarette or a clip of uh, Kim Kardashian digging out a specially plump booger in slow motion, that kind of thing. Oh, you betcha. Okay, well, say your dad forwards that same humorous JPEG to 11 relatives, six friends, and one annoyed stay-at-home dog washer who happens to have an email address one character off from your cousins. Well, now each of these proud recipients has a copy of the same JPEG, right? But who actually owns it? Uh, the person who originally took the photo? Wrong. No, 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 no. The person who registered it as an NFT. It only takes a few minutes and about 350 bucks in cryptocurrency and your claim to the digital artifact is permanently embedded in the blockchain. Even if some other arsehole takes the same JPEG and makes his own NFT from it with a better name and sells it at a greater profit because of a clever cross-promotion with 15-year-old TikTok star, you're still the rightful owner. So you think NFTs are a good investment right now? Absolutely. I mean, did you ever think a house in Kikarden would be worth $800,000? It's going to be the same thing with NFTs. The best time to get in was two months ago, and the second best time is right now. But how do people actually make money from the NFT market? Mm, well, there's lots of ways. There's actually a new Kickstarter project out right now from the Vugan Corporation, which is based on a Raspberry Pi arm board, but it plugs into your dog's collar, and every time the dog has a bowel movement, it generates 10% of a poop emoji NFT, tweets about it in real time, and then places it for auction on the Neo Tokyo Digital Art Exchange. There's a German Shepherd right now in Belgium with a variation of Crohn's disease, which is earning its owner 360 US dollars per day, minus transaction and blockchain drainage fees. Okay, well that clears up a lot for me. Thanks for the tips, Lance. I guess I'll be taking out some credit card advances tomorrow and putting my money to work on the blockchain. Crypto, crypto, crypto. It's digital. Are you sick and tired of people getting in your face about peace, love, and understanding when all you really want to do is stretch and berate yourself? Then try aggressive yoga. That's right, agro yoga. 
You know, when Willow and Moonbeam are saluting the sun and welcoming the day, you can be tearing up your hamstrings in an aggressive downward dog while cursing your very existence or taking a minute to scream at the objects of your frustration from a perfect lotus position. Join me, Certified Agro Yoga Instructor Frank W. Solak, for free classes, nightly, about 8.15ish, around the backside of the bandstand in Harrison Park. Someone could bring beer, that'd be great. Agro Yoga! Pardon the interruption. We are receiving reports from our European affiliates that the revolution has begun. In Paris, the president has declared martial law and ordered people to shelter in place pending further instructions. In London, World War II-era bomb shelters are being opened to accommodate millions of Britons. And in Helsinki, cabinet has emerged from the national sauna to inform citizens that conscription may be a necessary option. We're joined now by Sarah Gary Larry, our Budapest correspondent. Sarah, can you tell us what's going on? Bedlam, mayhem, and debauchery. And those are just the words I learned this morning. Since that time, the world has changed radically. Here in Hungary, people have turned to the streets in record numbers. But there is fear and trepidation. People aren't sure if to prepare to fight or to flee. Many Hungarians have been drawn towards the enigmatic balloon animal performance artist, Ivan Kroklaw, whose populist movement don't be hangry, be hungry, has encouraged civil disobedience and petty larceny. Bolstered by the messages of encouragement that Crowclaw is sending via Tor browser chat rooms, the crowd is marching its way towards Parliament and, it appears, intends to occupy the site. Police are largely staying on the edges of the crowd, not wanting to incite any more violence than is already anticipated. Sarah, have you seen anything unusual? Yes, I once saw a bloke pass out and hit his head on the corner of a coffee table after performing auto-asphyxiation on a dare. He called it a jerry. In the area? No, that was years ago at Jay Roberts' place. Right. How about now in Budapest, Sarah? Oh, yes. Nothing too out of the ordinary, despite the extraordinary circumstances. As the crowd nears Parliament, it's clear that there is some worry amongst some of the protesters that there doesn't seem to be any cohesive strategy for communicating demands. For example, I've just seen a man carrying a placard that said, ban the bomb, and then a few seconds later that said, kill for peace. That's Sarah Gary Larry in Budapest. We turn now to our Washington bureau chief, Jack Flaps, and in studio with us, his sister and wartime preparedness strategy expert, Glenda Flaps Stamps. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Good to be here. Jack Flaps, we'll start with you. Is the world at the precipice? Very much so. The whole world is very volatile at the moment. Barring some unforeseen last minute cooling of heads, I expect that the rhetoric and tension will continue to ratchet up. Take us through the events of the last several weeks that have brought us to this point. Well, in March of this year, NATO leadership decided to allow the breakaway Canadian region of the Bruce Peninsula to declare official neutrality and withdraw from the alliance, taking most of their modest military material and specialized training with them. Neither the Canadian federal government nor the Ontario provincial government put up much protest about the declaration, and both appeared to tactically support the region's right to political autonomy. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Friedland said, It's just a bunch of Bruce County boys out having a bit of fun. They'll calm down after deer season. Or not. We're not too worried. They can do what they want up there. They're not bothering anybody. An Ontario Provincial Police spokesperson said that police won't be intervening, citing a long-standing force policy to not get involved in quashing political uprisings unless the participants are at least 30% Indigenous. Glenda, why are these events in rural Yeehaw, Ontario relevant to the rest of the country and what we're seeing happening? Well, the folks up the Bruce set the precedent. 
If a region could make its own foreign policy decisions, it was a de facto microstate and independent of the province and country. It also meant that other parts of the country could conceivably do the same. And they did. Not surprisingly, Quebec immediately followed through on the promises of René Levesque, the New Brunswick-Nova Scotia Strategic Alliance was forged, and the city of Toronto was evicted from Ontario by popular vote of the rest of the province. Jack, the idea spread around the world quite quickly, didn't it? Indeed. Taking Quebec's lead, Scotland declared immediate independence from London, while London, like Toronto, was kicked out of England. In Italy, rich families are commissioning large-scale works of art depicting scenes from such varied works as the Bible, Dante's Inferno, and Weekend at Bernie's. You mentioned city-state rule. Just how are these newly formed bodies governing themselves? Surely not every one of the now thousands of microstates will elect a formal government and send delegates to world bodies like the UN or the IMF or the WWE, will they? Many of the cities have vested power in their currently elected city councils until such time that new governance structures can be put in place and elections held. It's interesting that the vast majority of places we've heard about and talked to so far intend to adhere to the principles of democracy and open elections. There are some exceptions, of course. In some tribal regions, for example, they have reverted to ancient practices. In others, new forms of government are being tested like in the former Kazakh region of Lower Semi, where they have decided to go with a hereditary matriarchal absolute monarchy and have named a local agitator their first queen. Uh, Hold that thought, Glenda. I'm being told that we have an update from Sarah Gary Larry in Budapest. Sarah? Yes. In the first signs of any real action, the don't be hangry, be hungry supporters are moving in towards police positions. The police are holding rank, but sporadic hand-to-hand combat has broken out. So far, only tear gas has been fired, and we haven't heard any reports of gunfire. This is very much a crowd control situation at the moment, rather than a government quelling of unrest. And wait a minute, what's that? I'm not really sure what I'm seeing. I think Ivan Krokal has arrived with his entourage in an enormous wood-paneled station wagon. The crowd, they're parting to let him through. It's really an extraordinary scene here. Crowclaw is dressed in a quasi-military uniform, complete with a balloon hat. His entourage is similarly attired, and great swells of patriotic dubstep are blasting from the car stereo, which has to have at least a couple 1,200-watt amps in there, and huge subs. I mean, listen to that. The bass is just thumping. Wait for it. Wait for the drop. Here it comes. Sarah. Sarah? I think we've lost Sarah. Well, that's all the news for now. Check back in at the top of the hour when Bugsby Tootson will be here with Dingspitch Roseworthy to discuss the ever-changing global situation, and they'll have a special retrospective piece by Ponzi Winston Henderson looking back at the mid-20th century craze of putting poorly cured meats into jello. Hot Greasy Tips from Dandy Andy's. This week's special, custom embroidered fedoras with two-color beam of your choice, and new in the petting zoo baby wallabies. Come on down to Dandy Andy's Haberdashery and Marsupial Sanctuary on 3rd Street. Open noon till 9. Good evening. Due to the ongoing civil case, the producers of A Practical Guide to Nothing in Particular are required to inform the listening audience that the Canadian Tire Triangle Rewards Points Program is a customer privilege and not a charter right in Canada. The writers of Practical Guide to Nothing in Particular regret any unintentional comments that may have suggested otherwise. In lighter news, he's a sausage hunter. 
she's a sausage roll baker, and together they've bridged the gap between two groups of people who had been hellbent on mildly annoying one another. Johann Gustafsson followed in his father's footsteps as the latest generation to take up the family business in the sausage trade, and as a high-ranking member of the Swedish-American Hate League. Well, it's not like I had much of a choice. Being born and raised a sausage man meant there was meat in the blood and a distaste for fins on the tongue. Somewhat confusingly, the Swedish-American Hate League holds no ill will against Swedish-Americans at all. No, we're Swedish ourselves. I guess the name could have been clearer, but our Swedish forefathers used to gather after church to gossip and spread rumors about their enemies, real and perceived, and foment rebellion in their communities. We just carried on in that tradition. I'm not quite sure why I singled out the Finns, really. It could have just as easily been anyone in those days. The Scots, the Venezuelans, the Tongalese, whatever. Point is, when I was growing up, it was Swedes good, not Swedes, not as good. But of course, things changed when I met Mary June. Mary June Chakraborty is a Bangladesh-born, Tennessee-raised pastry baker who specializes in sausage rolls. She was also a founding member of the Swedish-American Defamation Union, which promoted slandering and discrediting Swedish-Americans. At least our name makes sense. Anyways, it was never anything too serious. Just little stuff like buying up all the heron in town or leaving notes under the windshield wipers saying things like the mother's meatballs are dry or that the new ABBA songs kind of suck. Anything to get them pissed off. Enough to think about moving back to their icy hellhole or at least across town. But then I met Johan. It was during an industry convention where Johan and Mary June first met. They didn't like each other very much at first. One look at him and I could tell right away that he was a She was wearing a t-shirt with Calvin pissing on a Volvo logo, so I knew it wasn't going to be much fun. Johan and Mary June had been put together in a working group with other industry types to explore ways of making the forced-to-table sausage experience more efficient. We Gustafsons have been hunting sausage for generations. We knew their breeding grounds, the herd migrations, and the best way to capture them and get them loaded onto the boats. But then this Thai hillbilly... Bluegrass Bengali! This Cambodian cornholer was trying to tell me how to better snare sausages. I just couldn't take it. We have a pretty good idea about sausage here in Tennessee, too. But this lootfisk lover... That's Norwegian. This Nordic numpty wouldn't listen to common sense. Eventually... After working side by side for weeks, Johan and Mary June came to something of a begrudging mutual respect. It turns out she knew her carizo from her Landjager, which was a bit surprising for a Hanoi hayseed. Dixie Dickia! Whatever. She knew how to handle meat, and that got me to thinking. It got him to thinking about how he could find a way to incorporate his sausage into Mary June's rolls. It took some convincing, but after a couple of Jack Daniels... Tennessee made! And an ample smorgasbord, we found right away that my sausage and her rolls were made for each other. It even helped with my anxiety. He worries about the a lot. Because after we tried it a few times, my stress levels went down significantly. I didn't think a little sausage in the bun could fix what ailed me. But only a few licks and nibbles later, I knew that we had something special here. That was 15 years ago. This Thursday, Johan and Mary June will be celebrating the opening of their 53rd Sausage Sack storefront. Over the years, they've created more than 1,500 jobs and amassed a fortune. It's been hard work, but it's been worth it. We're now in a position where we are able to step back from the company a little and let our managers handle things. 
We've been able to put the money to good use too. After the fiasco was our wedding, we were able to reconcile our communities a little through constructive dialogue and the now semi-weekly sitball tournament. With that momentum, we got people put to work at the shack and we even opened a free of charge horse daycare. Of course, we tried to convince the government to help us build a children's hospital, but they didn't think children would be much good at practicing medicine. So instead, we opened Half a Horsepower, which is our go-kart track slash agro-yoga retreat. It's been very popular, and with money from that, we've been sponsoring some very exciting research at Vugan Enterprises, as well as paying to send more than 40 young people to study the sausage arts in various European and Oceanic capitals. Their philanthropic efforts have worked towards bettering everyone in their community. Almost. Right! Everyone but the fucking- And now these messages from our sponsors. Look, we get it. This chronic inflation is hurting everyone. Everything costs more than it used to. But that shouldn't mean you have to give up getting a good stiff buzz on several afternoons and evenings a week. Introducing new McSwiggin's Nominal Ale, a somewhat palatable libation for the financially challenged connoisseur. But don't just take our word for it, for all you know this could be a paid advertisement. We accosted several prominent booze hounds at a local bar, and here's one of the unrehearsed testimonials. What I like to do is have a real beard to kind of get a good coating of flavor on me gums and down me throat. Then slam back three or four of these McSwiggins and then have a one last craft beer to top her all off. Booyah! Just saved myself four dollars, which is damn near enough for a sack of all-dressed chips or a cock pepperoni. Try a five-pack of McSwiggins Nominal Ale today, available at many fine liquor outlets and quite a few lousy ones too. It's not that great, but then again, it's not that much. Your wallet will thank you, your mouth won't care, and your liver, well, fuck that guy. McSwiggins, McSwiggins, McSwiggins Nominal Ale. Okay, and that wraps up another edition of the PG Dip. Join us next time for another curated platter of nothing in particular. And just a reminder to all our listeners that you can follow us via the Yellow Pages on CB Radio or even by Smell if the winds are favorable.